Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Good morning. It's 8.30 on Monday, July 16th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, we'll learn how U.S. Senator Roger Wicker is helping open doors to FCC funding at the state's largest hospital. Then, it's official, this season's first case of West Nile virus is confirmed. Find out ways you can avoid the infection this year. We'll hear how the bail bond industry is faring in the state and what new rules could mean for Mississippians. Although we're identifying this case in central Mississippi, all parts of Mississippi need to be aware and alert. And the story of a former juror feeling regret regret 20 years after a Mississippi man was sentenced to death. That's all coming up. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. The Federal Communications Commission is looking to help Mississippi's largest hospital expand its telehealth program. MPB's Desiree Frazier reports. Mississippi U.S. Senator Roger Wicker joined Federal Communications Commissioner Brendan Carr to announce the agency wants to provide up to $1 million to help expand telehealth in the state. Wicker invited Carr to visit the University of Mississippi Medical Center earlier this year to see how they provide health care to rural areas. Carr says the FCC wants to help expand remote monitoring services. He says the agency will vote on the plan next month. We thought, how can we at the Federal Communications Commission plug into this and support, at a minimum, the broadband connections that are necessary to make these remote patient monitoring projects work? And so we'll ultimately be opening up applications for uh, hospitals and projects that come to us. Friday, Karin Wicker visited Ruleville to talk to low-income patients who took part in a 2014 telehealth pilot project that remotely monitored diabetics. Each person received an Android tablet to keep track of their blood sugar levels and watched educational videos about the disease. Doctors treated them using two-way live communication. UMMC found 96% took their medicines and 83% kept their appointments. Senator Wicker says telehealth is critical for rural Mississippians. We are at the cutting edge of, of this type of medicine because we have to be, because we need to be in Mississippi. Dr. Luann Woodward is with the medical center. The pilot led to helping more people with a variety of disorders. There is so much more potential. So we are delighted and so pleased and proud to be part of this today and excited about the future possibilities. UMMC is one of two telehealth centers for excellence in the country. Desiree Frazier, MPB News. In other news, the Mississippi State Department of Health is warning Mississippians to avoid exposure to mosquitoes. Experts say this is the beginning of West Nile season. Officials at MSDH have confirmed this year's first case of West Nile virus in Hines County. In 2017, Mississippi reported 63 West Nile cases and two deaths. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist at MSDH at the MSDH. He tells MPB's Ezra Wall it's hard to predict what 
We'll see going forward, but everyone should take caution. We know that West Nile can be variable. Uh, Some seasons we can have more cases uh, than others. This is our first case. It's an indication that um, there are mosquitoes out there that carry the virus and that there has been transmission. Uh, I think it's important for everyone to understand that although we're identifying this case in central Mississippi, all parts of, of Mississippi need to be aware and alert and take action to prevent mosquito exposures and reduce their risk of infection, regardless of where you live. As most years progress, we see the list of counties where West Nile has occurred grows and grows and grows, and and there really isn't any part of the state that is immune to it, is there? We have seen West Nile in just about every part of the state, with the exception of one county in the Delta, but the West Nile's been all around it. So we know that we have West Nile activity top to bottom. We've identified positive mosquitoes before. Uh, We've had positive horses that have been infected with West Nile. And certainly we have had a number of human cases of West Nile over the years. We know that it's here to stay, and so we expect to see cases every year. I know this is the first case of 2018, and you mentioned already how this is is an unpredictable thing. Is there a way to know sort of when the peak of the season tends to be? Oh, yes, absolutely. Now is the time of year when we see most of our West Nile activity. In the hotter summer months, July, August, September, going into the beginning of October is when we see most of the West Nile cases occur in Mississippi. Now, West Nile can occur any time of the year. We've seen cases uh, as early as January and as late as December. But by far, our most active times of the year are July, August, and September. So we are just now really entering uh, that time when we see most of our cases. What are the most common steps that people can take to prevent West Nile or to avoid being bitten by a mosquito that might be carrying West Nile? There are certainly more opportunities for exposure as we do more activities outdoor. There are some things that you can do to help protect yourself, though. One of the easiest things to do is to look around your home for areas where this mosquito can breed and get rid of those areas. Um, This type of mosquito is the southern house mosquito, and it uh, it can breed and lay eggs in any very small collection of water. It can be an overturned pot sitting out in your backyard. It can be an old child's pool that's collected some water in it. It can be a backed-up gutter or a tire. It's important to look around your property and identify those places where mosquitoes can breed and dump them out and make sure of that. And you need to, you need to look at that every time it rains to go out and find those areas. If there's a place in your in your yard where um, you can't empty the water, put larvicide in it. Um, certainly use mosquito repellent on yourself and your children when you go outdoors every time. Try to avoid those times of the day when mosquitoes are most active. This type of mosquito likes to be very active in the cooler times of the day. So in those... Um, uh, hours in the evening or in the early morning is when we see most of the activity of this mosquito.
so now that we've heard a little bit how to how to prevent it, what are what are the symptoms of West Nile that people might recognize in themselves or in their family members, and what should they do when they experience those symptoms? You know, for most of us, West Nile is a relatively mild infection with little or no symptoms. Um, if you are going to have symptoms, usually it's um, fever and a headache. You may have a little bit of a rash. Um, if you have that and you know that you've been outdoors, you know that you've been potentially exposed to um, mosquitoes, there's a potential that you may have West Nile. You need to consult with your physician. There's a more severe form of West Nile that can occur as well, usually in people over the age of 50, um, and that's neuroinvasive disease that can lead to encephalitis, meningitis, in some cases can lead to a polio-like paralysis. It's definitely important to consult your physician if you begin to have symptoms consistent with that. There can be some, some paralysis. There can be some mental status changes in fever. Take your loved ones to the doctor if you notice those things in them. Dr. Paul Byers is the state epidemiologist. Dr. Byers, thank you for sharing this information with us. Thank you. Coming up, we'll hear how the bail bond industry is faring in the state and what new rules could mean for Mississippians. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Can't stick around for the rest of the show? You can always catch up by logging on our website at mpbonline.org or use the MPB Public Media app on your mobile device. This is MPB Think Radio, where Mississippi is our mission. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. New bail and bond requirements could affect how much Mississippians have to pay to get out of jail. A statewide code of criminal conduct was adopted for the first time in 2017. A new report from the legal nonprofit The Marshall Project shows the requirements could have a dramatic effect on the bail bonds industry in Mississippi. Joe Neff is a reporter with The Marshall Project. He says Mississippians could spend less time, if any, in jail for minor offenses. Our story looked at the bail bond industry. There's been lots of stories nationally about the effect of people who have to pay bail to get out of jail, but this is looking at the other half of the equation. Uh, How profitable is the bail industry? And uh, we found this very interesting data from the Mississippi Department of Insurance that allowed us to answer that question. How lucrative is the bail industry? Who's making money off of it? And from what sort of charges? Your story focuses on a man named Brian Corbett, and he has Corbett bonding. It would appear he has a corner on the market for as much money as he's made. Can you talk about him? Right. When we examined the data from the uh, Mississippi Department of Insurance, we found that the largest, the most profitable uh, bail company in Mississippi was Corbett Bonding, which is based in Tupelo, uh, and the owner is Brian Corbett, and he has about 19 or 20 agents working for him up in counties in the northeastern part of the state, and they write a lot of bonds. Almost half of them are for minor or petty charges where the bond is set at less than $5,000, and those bonds provide a steady income in the sense that there is a minimum charge for any bail bond written in Mississippi of $150. And this allows a a, a guaranteed minimum price for the bail agent, and they 
if they they can make a lot of money off of these petty charges. It's almost like fast food. Are there minimums in other states, or is Mississippi alone in this practice? There are minimum bonds uh, in, in other states, but I think that Mississippi, from what I found, is the most generous. I think it's 120 is the minimum in Louisiana, 50 in other states. Uh, but but Mississippi sets it at either 10% of the bond or $100, whichever is greater, plus $50 for an administrative fee. So you have people, a bond is set at $500 or even $300, and to get out of jail, the, the defendant has to pay $150 to get out to the bail agent. Is this a case of debtor's prison meets bondsman because there have been a lot of stories and suits over the concept of debtor's prison? Correct. This is uh, related to the whole issue of debtor's prisons. There's been a couple lawsuits in Mississippi filed by, usually at the center of it is um, the MacArthur Justice Center at the University of Mississippi Law School. They filed, have been in on several lawsuits about the very issue that uh, uh, someone is jailed on a petty charge, an infraction, a traffic charge, an open container, whatever, and they have to. They cannot. The reason why they're not out of jail is because they cannot afford to pay bail. What's important is why do we have bail? Is that there are two two factors at play? Is the person a danger to the community? Well, then that person should uh, stay in jail. Or is the person a flight risk? Are they going to show up in court? So if the person's not a flight risk, if they're going to show up in court, and if they're not a danger to the community, why should their freedom be dependent on whether they can afford to pay a bail agent? So there have been several lawsuits in Mississippi, Moss Point, Jackson, the most recent settled with city of Corinth, that have gotten rid of uh, cash bail for misdemeanors. And what makes your story most significant, having given us all of those facts? Mississippi did not have uniform rules of criminal procedure until July 1st, 2017, so last year. They've just been in place for a year. Uh, They were 13 years in the making. But these rules, if implemented in every court around the state, would really cut down on the number of people jailed for misdemeanors and and how long they're held. Under the new rules, you have to see uh, someone arrested has to be before judge within 48 hours. Prior to the rules, people may wait uh, a week or more, depending on when the session of justice court or municipal court uh, would be, was open. And also, these new rules prioritize how a person is to be released. If you're not a threat to the community or if you're not a flight risk and the charge is a minor charge, let people out on their own recognizance. Have them sign a piece of paper saying, I will show up in court. If there are, the second uh, choice would be, well, sign a piece of paper telling the court, I will pay so much money if I, to the court if I fail to show up. So those are now the first two steps. The third step is to use uh, a secured bond, which we know is bail bonds. So for all of these petty charges that make up uh, three-quarters of the bonds written in Mississippi, many of those might go away if these new rules are implemented across the state in all of the courts. What's the takeaway from your story, from your investigation? I I think the purpose of this story is to inform the people of Mississippi about 
the reality of the bail industry. Who's making money from it and how? And Mississippi, through the Supreme Court and the legislature, has uh, raised questions about whether these practices uh, need to go forward into the future. The bail industry is not going to go away in Mississippi, but the the, the big news here is that Mississippi historically has been one of the most hospitable states to bail bondsmen. And there is organic change bubbling up and things will be different in the future. But the bail industry, I don't think is going to go away. Joe Neff is a reporter with the Marshall Project. Thank you so much, Joe. Thank you. Coming up, the story of a former juror feeling regret 20 years after a Mississippi man was sentenced to death. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. MPBonline.org is the destination for everything Mississippi Public Broadcasting. Catch up on past shows from Think Radio, check out MPB TV or Music Radio, and become a sustaining member all from one place. Get connected now at MPBonline.org. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. A Mississippi woman who was among the jurors that sentenced a man to death in 1994 is sharing her story of realizing regret. Lindy Lou Wells Eisenhood has lived with the feelings for more than 20 years. In the POV documentary titled Lindy Lou, Juror Number 2, cameras follow Lindy Lou as she reconnects with fellow jurors to discover how the case has or hasn't challenged their views on the death penalty. She tells us how her opinion was changed. Before the trial started... My opinion was that it was basically like everybody else's in Mississippi, and I've said this a hundred times before, is that uh, if you murdered someone, you were just automatically going to receive the death penalty. Because to me, in Mississippi, that's basically the way it is. I mean, it's just you go in, you murder, give them the death penalty. Did you have reservations during the trial itself? Did you have a change of heart about the death penalty during the trial? That's when it was probably on about the third day that something kicked in and I just said, this is not right. It's it's just not right. The jury has to unanimously decide to put someone to death. Right. If you had reservations, then why did you vote with the others? And were there any more holdouts? My moral compass was going like in... It was just going in 15 different directions because I knew what I had been not taught. You're not taught to believe in the death penalty. I mean, it's never discussed. It's never thought of. It's just like uh, a tradition. I hate to say that, but it's just like that's what happened. So you never put any thought into the death penalty. Of course, I never thought I was going to be on death penalty trial, so why think about it? I mean, you don't discuss it. So even though you might have had reservations, it was a, it was a natural thing to go along with the right. rest of I the mean, jury. But then when I mentioned what about life, I did mention it. And we sent a question out to the judge, or I'm, I'm not real sure who got the question, but the answer came back to us. And I think the question went out. Was there life without parole in Mississippi? Is there any chance that this guy may get out? And the answer came back, let history be your judge. Well, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. That people get out all the time. And so we didn't want him out. Um, We knew he was guilty. So 
So you had two tough alternatives. I did. And then, you know, like I think one of the other jurors said, it's a bad choice and a worse choice. And also it was like um, one of the jurors had said that in Texas, I believe the governor had pardoned a bunch of people. And he accidentally pardoned a guy that was on death row, and he got out and killed some more people. And that I want that to happen. Of course I didn't, you know. But um, I don't know. I just, there was just too many unknown factors, too much information we were not allowed to have to make a rational decision. And also when you're going to the jury room, we're given the judge's criteria of how to reach a verdict. And when you read that and you go over every point, it only leads you to one conclusion, and that's the death penalty. Bobby Glenn Wilcher was put to death almost 12 years ago, in 2006? 2006, yeah. So almost 12 years ago. And you visited him in prison. You became friends with him, right? in a sense. And when did you decide to go find the jurors to talk to them about it? That didn't happen until the film crew got there. It was a film crew from France, and they were going across the United States talking to different states about their opinion of the death penalty. When they got to Mississippi, they went to Cliff Johnson's office, who was Bobby's attorney right there at the end. And Cliff says, look, I want you to talk to a juror. So they called me, and I came to Cliff's office and talked to the film crew in 2013. And then they came every summer after that until about maybe it's been almost two years ago now. How many jurors were you able to track down or who would talk to you? I would say maybe 11 of the jurors. It was one we couldn't find. Out of 14 because there were two alternates. Right. And then one of the jurors didn't want to talk to me. I've seen your interaction with five of them so far. Okay. And it's interesting because one of them talked about how he thought jury members made light of it. They just wanted to get in there, make a decision, and get out of there. Right. That it wasn't about deciding the fate of a man as it was getting home. That's the attitude. I mean, he said it was kind of like going in there and voting to pass a bond issue or something. Yeah, I think those were his words. And he was bothered by, even afterwards, people who were sort of joking. Yeah. Um, about did you fry the guy? Exactly. And then there was another juror who was very analytical about everything. Everything's in black and white, but made some some good points about his decision-making process. I mean, you talk to these people, and they all have different reasons for making the decision they did. Jane, who you spoke to, juror number nine, she is now totally opposed to the death penalty after going through that trial. Right. And then one gentleman you spoke to who didn't even remember any of the details of the trial. Um, what were you hoping to find? Changed hearts. Changed. I mean, and a lot of them did have remorse, and they said they wouldn't do it again because it was such a burden. And I guess until we can educate, I guess what I'm looking for is, is this, that's it. It's just the average person you take off the street and put in a jury room to decide someone's death. I don't think they're equipped. I think they have the basic mentality of what the death penalty represents, uh, eye for an eye, and that's just not the way it is. My purpose was to let him know that he still had worth as a person. And, of course, I'm a person of faith, 
and I wanted to tell him that, you know, God loved him just like he did me and that he was worthy. What do you want people who watch this documentary to go away with? I want them to think about what death really means, and I want them to realize that there's a very fine line between revenge and justice, and does it really bring closure? And um, I want people just to realize that when you go in a jury room or you sit on on a trial, there are more facts than you know. There are things that you're not allowed to hear. And it's just, it's more to it than just, if you murder, you deserve the death penalty. Well, she's Lindy Lou Juror number two. (laughs) Thank you so much for being with us. Well, thank you. And Lindy Lou Juror number two airs tonight at nine o'clock on MPB television. Stay tuned to MPB Think Radio for a full slate of Mississippi-based programs all morning long. Coming up at 9 o'clock, it's Deep South Dining. Then at 10, it's Now You're Talking. And at 11, stay tuned for Southern Remedy Healthy and Fit. Did you miss part of the show today? Find past episodes of this and other Think Radio programs online at mpbonline.org or by downloading the MPB Public Media app from the Apple or Google Play stores. I'm Karen Brown. Join us again tomorrow morning at 8.30 for the next Mississippi edition, only on MPB Think Radio.